I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the pipe or harp? How will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinct distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit, my spirit prays, but, mind, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen? to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying. You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, with our tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this, pe- to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, They are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all. As the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Thank you, Grace. Now you are listening to the word of God. Please do keep your Bibles open. I've no idea if my microphone is working or not. The, the, the microphone gremlins have clearly been at work ah there we are that's great um please do keep your bibles open as steph was reminding us this morning we want to be a church that really listens to the word of god and that's one of the best ways we can do it isn't it as i'm speaking for you to have bibles open and be listening and checking what i'm saying against what's written in god's word let's pray together shall we Father, we want to thank you so much for your word to us. Thank you that you are a God who speaks. And you speak because you want us to know you. So I pray that this morning we would not simply learn about you, but we would know you better. Know you better for ourselves, through the words that you have spoken. Will you speak them freshly into our lives? 
in the power of your Holy Spirit and change and transform us into the likeness of Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. Great. I might also need the little, the gizmo. Excuse me. Okay, well, let me tell you about my friend, Jim. Jim has got a really big brain. He's got an amazing uh, ability to read books on theology and understand them. His grasp of the Bible means that he is often theologically correct. And he is a great blessing to the church. People are really helped by Jim's insights if they've got a question or a problem, they'll often go to Jim because Jim often has a a kind of understanding of the issues and is able to take them to God's word and show them what God says. But increasingly, Jim kind of feels like he needs to be the smartest guy in the room. And in fact, increasingly, he kind of needs to show that he's the smartest guy in the room as well. He's prone to belittling other people. Uh, In conversation, he's often engaged in a kind of one-upmanship, always trying to get the last word in and win the argument. And Jim can't really help it. He can't really stop it because... God's given him this big brain. It's what makes Jim, Jim. Well, let me tell you about my friend, Sandra. If your names are Jim and Sandra, you're not my friends. It's okay. Well, you are my friends, but you know what I mean. I'm not talking about you. Sandra, God has given Sandra the gift of tongues. Sandra's quite a new believer. She She struggled to pray. She felt like a kind of second-rate Christian. And actually, as God gave her the gift of tongues, it really grew her in her own private prayer life with God. It's been an amazing blessing to her. It's really helped to grow her in her faith. But increasingly, when Sandra feels insecure in a group setting, when she feels a little bit like a second-rate Christian amongst others, she'll use the gift of tongues to show that she's just as spiritual as everyone else. In fact, she's kind of even more spiritual. And people are impressed. People are beginning to view Sandra differently, and she likes it. She can't stop. I mean... It's the gift God's given her, and it's what makes Sandra, Sandra. Well, we've been spending our time together over the last few weeks thinking about the gifts of the Spirit, thinking about these these gifts that God gives us and their purpose and their role in the life of the church. And we've been doing it by looking at 1 Corinthians, this particular section of 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 to 14. And it's a really helpful place to go because God is trying to tackle the issue head on with this church. For this church in this place called Corinth, 
That's why it's called 1 Corinthians. It's Paul's, the Apostle Paul's first letter to this church. And as he's written to them, it's become evident that for them, true spirituality, what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be a person of God, for them is all about kind of being spiritually gifted. And perhaps a little bit more than that, it's about having the kinds of gifts that look impressive, that make people go, wow, or the kind of gifts that people want to talk about, or you want to tell stories about, or you want to write, you know, books about. And for the Corinthians, the goal in their use of these gifts in the life of the church has really been about power and about pride. It's become incredibly divisive. The church is divided over a whole load of things. People are being puffed up, puffing themselves up because they want to be impressive in the sight of others. And Paul has been writing to them and saying, listen, what is it that makes you a true Christian? What is it that makes you truly spiritual? It's actually not your giftedness. It's your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you can only say that Jesus is Lord if you have the Holy Spirit in you. If you're living with Jesus as Lord, it is the sign you are truly spiritual. And you have every spiritual blessing in him. And the, and the badge or the sign that this is the case is not your gifts. It's not like the scouts, you know, where you collect your badges and the more gifts you've got, the better a Christian you are or the better a scout you are. It's not like that. He says, no, the badge, this was last week, the badge, the badge of true spirituality is love, which took us all the way back to the, the, the series we did before Christmas on the fruit of the Spirit. And we saw that really the outworking of the fruit of the Spirit is love in all its kind of myriad of dimensions. So the badge is not gifts. The badge is love. And so now as he gets practical in chapter 14, as he gets down to the detail in relation to spiritual gifts, he wants us to see that the goal with gifts is love. It's, it's a logic that kind of has been flowing all the way through these three chapters. Look at chapter 14, verse 1 then. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now, we'll see why he says especially prophecy in a moment. But the point is that he's saying, listen, go in the way of love. Follow the way of love as you eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. As you deploy your gifts, as you grow in your gifts, do so with the goal of love. It's the outworking of chapter 13, which was all about how love is more important than gifts. He basically said there, listen, if you've got gifts and you've got no love, you've got nothing. Whereas if you have love, you have everything. Now, as he gets practical, he's not saying that some gifts are more important than others. He's saying that the way that we use our gifts,
gifts is more important than the gifts themselves. And it will then delineate kind of which gifts come into play in the life of the church together. Especially, he says, in relation to tongues and prophecy that we'll come to in a moment. But just at a basic level, it's really helpful, isn't it, as we start to think, well, okay, in terms of the gifts God's given me, in terms of the ministries God's given me, in terms of the areas of service that he's given me, because if you remember in chapter 12, he broadened it right out to everything, really, that we do as Christians. In that area, the question becomes, how do I know if I'm using this? How do I know if I'm doing this in the way of love, with the goal of love? So apply it to myself. You know, I have the privilege of preaching most Sundays. That's the gift God's given me to bless the church together. That's the gift you've set me apart to use. And the question is, as I'm preparing to preach each week, how do I know that I'm really using this gift in the way of love? How do I really know that I'm using this gift with the goal of love? And Paul gives us three tests, I think, in these verses to really help us to think this through. But it applies to me, it applies to each of us, doesn't it? Maybe it's to do with our role in the music group or the all-together time this morning or leading the creche or running the tea and coffee or having a prayer ministry or offering hospitality or speaking in tongues or having a prophetic ministry amongst others. In all of these areas, the question is, how do I, what's the test to know that love is the goal? And that's what this section is all about. The first thing he says is this, use gifts to build the church. That's the way of love. Use gifts to build the church. Look at verse 2 of chapter 14. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather... Have you prophesy? The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, although it sounds like he's saying one gift is better than another, or one person with this gift is better than this person with this gift, it's not quite what he's saying. What he's really saying is that these gifts, it's in their deployment that means they're kind of, that sort of one is greater than another. And the fact is that prophecy has this ability to edify the church that tongues does not. And that makes it greater. In terms of the goal of love, in terms of using gifts that build the church, prophecy is greater. In fact, really, the key verse is verse 4. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, edify just means builds up the church, strengthens the church, blesses the church, encourages the church. 
And his point is this, use your gifts, deploy them, desire gifts that will build up others, not just yourself. Now, what about tongues and prophecy then? What is he talking about when he's talking about tongues and prophecy? Well, it seems in chapter 14 that tongues, the gift of tongues, is a kind of heavenly prayer language. Now, it's not understandable normally without interpretation. It's a, it's a language that none of us on earth understand naturally. It's one that's been given by God to an individual to help them to really express the inexpressible as they pray to God, as they bring prayers, uh, praise and thanksgiving to him. And so without interpretation person praying in tongues is still blessed. They're still built up because they're able to express, bring out of them before God the things that are in their heart. But it's only when it's interpreted, it's only when it's put into a language that we all understand that we can all then say amen to it and be built up and strengthened along with the individual. So that's tongues. And at Crossway Church, we believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue today. And there are a number of people that I know of, and there's probably others as well, who have the gift of tongues and who use the gift of tongues as a private prayer language for their own edification, for their own building up and strengthening. What about the gift of prophecy? Well, prophecy at its most basic level is about a revelation, delivering a revelation from God for the teaching, the building up, the encouragement, consolation, the challenge of the church. Also, if we read on a little bit more in 1 Corinthians 14, we'll see that prophecy is also about convincing unbelievers of the truth of the gospel and the reality of God's existence. Now, prophecy is not without error. So it's not that we get a sort of direct message from God and we can just write it down and add it to the Bible somehow. Now, there's almost a sense in which there's a kind of big P prophecy, which is the prophetic writings of Scripture, and a small P prophecy, which is really our ongoing ministry amongst our, as a body together, as the way that we speak the gospel pray into one another's lives. May, we may well have particular kind of words and encouragements and things like that for one another, but they all need to be weighed by the big P, the big P prophecy, the Bible itself. But it's not just preaching. Some people will say, well, prophecy in the New Testament is preaching. I think it includes preaching. I would hope that Actually, powerful preaching is prophetic preaching. But it's more than that. I think at Pentecost, it seems clear that there's a sense in which with the pouring out of the Spirit, we all become prophets. We all get the opportunity to declare the wonders of God into one another's lives. It's what we do when we share the gospel with each other. It's what we do when we apply the gospel to one another's lives. It's happening all of the time. So in one sense, at Crossway, I want us to talk it up, just as Paul does. He says prophecy is a really valuable and important and central ministry in the life of the church. It builds the church up. I want to talk it up, but I also want to talk it down. 
and say, it's going on all of the time. Actually, it should be normal. Through the preaching, through life groups, in one-to-one, as we pray for each other, other contexts you may find yourselves in, it will be happening. I think we've all had that experience. I certainly have. Most of us have had that experience of sort of sitting in church and it's almost as though the person preaching kind of can see right into your heart. <laughs> Ever had that? It's very unnerving, isn't it? It's like, you seem to have known exactly what my week was like. Now that is not, I think, coincidence. Nor is it because there's a sort of creepy pastor who's been stalking you on Facebook. I want to suggest that's the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. It's a prophetic edge that only the Spirit of God can bring. You may have had that kind of experience where a friend has messaged you or, or, or picked up the phone and said, look, I've been praying for you about this. And it's almost uncanny, you would say. It's it's spooky. You know, three other people have sent me that Bible verse or whatever. But it's not spooky. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the prophetic work of God amongst us as his people. And it builds the church up. It builds the church up in the most beautiful and powerful way. So that's tongues and prophecy. Now, you may disagree with those definitions, but actually, given the kind of sketchy details that we're given in the New Testament on these issues, I'd just suggest we agree to disagree on that and respect one another in the process. Whatever our position, though, Paul is clear. Whatever our position in relation to these issues, Paul is really clear. As we gather, we are to love one another in the use of our gifts in a way that builds up the church. So there's kind of a general application, isn't there? Whatever our gifts are, whatever we bring to the table, whatever our role in the life of the church, the church meeting is not designed for members to show their gifts off. And one of the questions we need to ask ourselves in every situation really is, am I... Am I puffing up myself or am I building up others? We'll probably be doing one or the other. There's never really neutral ground in this. Am I puffing up myself or am I building up others? Use gifts to build the church. That's the first sort of sign of the way of love. The second is this. Use gifts to bring understanding. So Paul seems to link building up the church with understanding things, or his word for it is intelligibility, which doesn't sound terribly intelligible to me, but there you go. But the point is it brings understanding. It brings understanding. And so verse 6, he says this, now brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction. The point is this, there's a difference between speaking in tongues and all these other speaking gifts that God gives. And the difference is understanding. <laughs> With one, 
I can't understand what's going on unless you, it's interpreted, unless I'm actually, there's somehow the gift of interpretation is at work. There's no way for me to know what's going on. It can't build me up. But with all the other gifts, which are speaking gifts, they're understandable, which explains why prophecy as a speaking gift is placed and elevated above tongues in the life of the church. But look at verse 7 then. He gives these illustrations even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue. How will anyone know what you are saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So he uses these three gifts, uh, these three illustrations. He says, think of a musical instrument. It's not just noise, is it? It's a tune that you're looking for. So let me just illustrate very briefly on the piano. Sorry, Jason, for this. But let's play a very quick game of name that tune, okay? Does anyone get it? Anyone want to guess what tune that was? It was actually Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto, but it may have been lost on you. But that's his point. That's exactly his point there. He says it's not just indistinct noise that comes out of an instrument, what makes it kind of communicable is the fact that it plays a tune. And then he says of the tongue, we don't just mumble, sometimes we do. It's like an instrument. Actually, what's important is that it carries words, and that's where the understanding comes. It happens with my kids when they're kind of come bounding up to me and they talk super, super fast at me. I'm like, oh, I didn't hear a word of that. I didn't slow down. Speak to me normally. But that's exactly what he's saying here. And then he says of human languages. Languages, he says, carry meaning, but only if you understand them. So it's, it's a great delight to me that although there are plenty of people here who speak uh, as their first language, something other than English, They've been willing to learn English, and that means I can communicate, perhaps not perfectly, but you know, re- really communicate on a Sunday morning to you all. I know that's not the primary reason you learn English as a language, but that's his point here. He says, if you don't know the language, you remain a foreigner. You remain an outsider, unable to hear what's going on. So he says, verse 12, excel in gifts that build up through understanding. You want to be spiritually powerful, says Paul, or strive for the gifts that will powerfully build up the church. Verse 13 then basically means there's a rule says Paul, in relation to tongues. Because of all this, there's a rule, verse 13. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. 
So what shall I do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my understanding. I'll sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving? Since they do not know what you are saying, you are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. So his point is this. Therefore, with tongues, there's a rule. Please pray for the interpretation first. Pray that you'll be able to put into human words the thing that God, the longing, the desire, the praise, the prayer, the worship, whatever it is that you bubbling out of you, pray that God will give you the understanding. That's verse 13, isn't it? It seems to really be hugely significant to Paul's understanding of tongues in the life of the church. The one who speaks in a tongue should pray. They should pray. They may interpret what they say. And actually, he's going to go on later on to say, look, if not, then keep quiet. In the corporate gathering, keep quiet. Or pray for the interpretation so that others can be blessed. And he says this isn't just a neutral thing. It's not like it doesn't matter whether you speak in tongues or not. He says actually it would have a detrimental effect if you're speaking in tongues, without interpreting it, without putting it into a language we can understand for the blessing of others. Look back at verse 16. He says, otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer, literally, who's now been put in the position of an outsider, how can they um, say amen? To, what, to your thanksgiving. He says, actually, it will have the effect of alienating people, pushing them out, instead of bringing them in and uniting them. Rather than building up the church, it actually has a damaging effect. But that's not to say tongues is a lesser gift. It's just the way that we use it is really important. Which is why he says in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He says this is a great gift. And it is a tremendous blessing to those who have it. I know that's the case. But in the church, I'd rather, he says, verse 19, I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. They're a fantastic, it's a fantastic gift for personal encouragement. But when you gather, prize gifts that bring understanding. So again, there's a bigger point there, isn't there? In a sense, for whoever we are, whether we speak in tongues or not, actually, we need to be really careful in the way that we do things, in the way that we serve in the life of the church, that we're not creating insiders and outsiders amongst God's people. Now, that might be about me not using long theological words that nobody understands as I'm preaching, for example. Sometimes you tell me off for that. Sometimes you're right to tell me off for that. I try hard not to kind of do that, but sometimes I forget. And when I'm doing it, actually what it does is it creates outsiders, doesn't it? Where there shouldn't be outsiders. People are going, oh, I didn't know what he was banging on about this morning. Well, that's probably true most weeks anyway, but... 
But the point is we shouldn't be intentionally creating insiders and outsiders amongst God's people. It might be that, you know, every time you lead a service, you always pick songs that nobody knows. <laughs> They're all your favorites or something like that. Well, again, it could have the effect, couldn't it? one thing to introduce songs that we can all enjoy together. It's another thing to simply choose things that create insiders and outsiders. Or it might be to do with always wanting to be in the know on things, wanting to be in the inner circle of the life of the church. It shouldn't be the case, should it, that there's a, as a church we have an inner circle and, and an outer circle in that sense. I appreciate there's elders were given set apart for specific roles in terms of oversight of the church but that's one of the reasons we encourage membership is that we want anyone who's views crossway church as their spiritual home to be an insider if you're a christian and this is your home we're saying come in come in be a part of it there's no outsiders amongst the people of god so use gifts to bring understanding and not to create outsiders in that sense. But thirdly, finally, he says this. He says, use gifts to bolster mission. In a sense, this is the three aspects of the way of love. Gifts that build the church. Gifts that bring understanding. Gifts that will bolster mission. Look at verse 22. Uh, verse 20, sorry. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. Now, this is basically what he said last week. He said, grow up. Grow up. Now, he says, in regard to evil, be infants. I don't want you to be growing up in evil, he says. But in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I'll speak to this people, but even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. What does he mean here? What is he going on about? Well, actually, I think the point he's making is quite straightforward. It's just not that clear, necessarily. He's, he's quoting from Isaiah 28. And he's quoting there because, actually, through the Old Testament, when people spoke in foreign tongues, when, when understanding dissolved, it was a sign of God's judgment. Think of the Tower of Babel. The point is, there's a group of people who wanted to make themselves great, make a great name for themselves, it says. Just like the Corinthians, actually. And what does God do? He sends foreign languages. Basically, he confuses their language so that they can't understand each other. And so Paul's saying, listen, if someone comes in and all they hear is tongues, all it communicates to them is confusion. All it communicates to them, actually, is not salvation and the good news of Jesus, but judgment. It's kind of saying, you're not welcome here. You don't belong here. You're not on the inside here, and you can't be. And Paul says, don't do that in your life as a church. Don't communicate that to people on the outside. Verse 23, it's worse, isn't it? So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers and unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? Because actually, it will, it will put them off. It will be even worse. It will repel them instead of drawing them to the good news of Jesus. 
But prophecy, he says, has the opposite effect. Verse 24. If an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all. As the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. See, the point is this. If we understand prophecy to be this communication of the gospel and the application of it in personal and deep ways in one another's lives through all kinds of different means in the life of the church, then actually when an unbeliever comes in, there's something we have at the very heart of what we're about that can result in a true spiritual encounter with the true and living God. See, prophecy is all about putting the gospel at the heart of your life as a community. I think it's very easy for us to feel inadequate about spiritual gifts. It's very easy to look at others and think, well, they're more important than us, they have more than us, they're more special than us. Maybe we're missing out on something. But Paul wants to finish this point by saying, listen, this is really exciting. Something that you regard as quite normal, putting the gospel at the heart of your life together, it will build up the church, it will bring understanding, it will bolster your mission, and it will result in the most amazing encounter for people with the true and living God. And this happens, friends, not in a big temple or a cathedral. It happens in a little house church. People come in, and as the simple gospel is articulated in God's power and with his love, people will really fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really amongst you. So the question is not kind of, or the issue is not, listen, but if God's really going to work powerfully, we need to sort of look powerful as a church. We need to display powerful gifts or whatever. No, for God to work powerfully, we need to, we need to live in the way of love. And as we do that, we will all use our gifts in a way that will build up the church bring understanding, and bolster our mission. Now, how do we do that as we finish? And I promise I'll try and be brief. It's simply this. There's one thing I just want us to understand. Because I think this is an ongoing struggle for each of us. It certainly is for me. Not to sort of live as though kind of the gifts God's given me are for me. And to grapple with the fact they're never for me. They're always for other people. To live with that kind of servant-heartedness. How do we do that? I think at root it's simply this. Our identity should not be in our gifts, but in the giver. It boils down to that, really. Our identity is in the giver and not the gifts. What is it that makes Jim, Jim? 
It's not his big brain. It's Jesus. That's what makes Jim, Jim. What is it that makes Sandra, Sandra? It's not her speaking in tongues. It's Jesus. What is it that makes John, John? It's not that he gets to preach on a Sunday morning. It's Jesus and only Jesus. And I think when we grasp that, it helps us to see that the gospel really sets us free from being defined by our gifts, whatever they may be. You see, if it's all about making Jesus Lord of our lives, submitting ourselves to him and his lordship over us, in a sense, if it's all about us enlisting, enlisting under the banner of Jesus, then actually it stops being about us at all. And we're just set free, set free to begin to pour out our lives in loving service of others in the particular ways that God has gifted us. See, I think that can sound very unattractive. Like, oh, right, so what you're really telling me is I need to sort of become a slave of Jesus and he'll deploy me wherever he wants and it'll be grim. Well, no. Well, it is that, but that's the most life-giving, beautiful, in freeing thing we can do with our lives. You see, freedom is not about having no master. Freedom is about having the right master. And if we live with King Jesus as the master of our lives, I tell you, it's the most exhilarating Wonderful journey to be on, isn't it? Gifts make rubbish masters. Because we spend our lives kind of crippled by our own insecurities, obsessed by the things that we lack, what other people think of us, how we compare to others. It is crippling. Gifts make rubbish masters, but the giver is the most loving master of all. And I wonder, maybe the challenge for each of us is, in every situation, as we enter a room, think about it, as you enter the next room you enter, we're so quick to think, what can I get out of this? What, what am I going to get from this? Come on, then. Give me some it. What actually, if we had the opposite stance, what can I give here? What can I give here? How can God use me here, right now, for his glory? Or what about as we meet someone? We're so quick to be thinking, what can I get from them? Is this person going to be someone who enhances my life or not? Is this person going to be good for me or not? Are they going to improve my life somehow? If not, I'm not interested. What actually if we have the opposite idea? Not what can I get from them? Not how will they improve my life? But how, how does God want me to love them today, whoever they are? It would change everything, wouldn't it? change the world, quite frankly. So the challenge for each of us this morning is to give up our grasping 
give up our grasping and give ourselves to Jesus. And as we finish, I just wanted to read a little quote. This is from the final sermon Charles Spurgeon preached before he died. But it just kind of, I, I was reminded of it this week. I think it was the anniversary of his death and someone had written a piece about it. But I thought, yes, that's absolutely the heart of this for us. So listen to these words. Every man must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or the Savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, you will find him so meek, so lowly of heart, that you will find rest unto your souls. He is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle, when the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish or superabundant in love, you always find it in him. These 40 years and more I have served him. Blessed be his name. And I have had nothing but love from him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below if it so pleased him. His service is life, peace, joy. Give up your grasping and give yourself to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that it might be true for each of us to be able to say with Spurgeon as he reflects on his life, that he'd do it all again in the service of Jesus. Father, it may be that this morning we're feeling weighed down. We're feeling spent. We're feeling empty and we're, we've given it all out and we're looking for some of it back. I pray that we would not look to the gifts. I pray that we would not look to others and what they can give us, but we would look only to Jesus and find in him everything we need for eternal salvation, 
and every step of the life that we take on this earth. And I pray that as a church, you'd be growing us in the way of love that we really might be. A church that builds one another up, that seeks to bring understanding and unity and is bolstered in our mission. For the honor of King Jesus, we pray.